You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! Film is not an immediate art form. Production can take weeks or months or more to complete. The cinema of 1969 reflects the turmoil of 1968, the political upheaval and protests that went on around the globe. From the Tet Offensive in January of 1968, the general strikes of France in May 68, the riots that ravaged America from Washington, D.C. to Chicago to Kansas City throughout the spring and into summer, political crises in Poland, Pakistan, West Germany, Scandinavia, Czechoslovakia, Spain, Italy, France, Brazil, and the UK and Yugoslavia. If 1968 is the year that shook the world, then the fallout of that year should be writ large on the silver screen in 1969. Throughout the year, we'll be looking at several films from 1969 and how politics, economics, religious, societal, and intellectual shifts in 1968 were reflected in the cinema of 1969. Join us, won't you? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Morris Bershtinsky. Zip! Boop! Take it, 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 take it
And back in the booth after far too long is Mr. Yaniv Edelstein. Our appreciation of 1969 continues with a look at The Big Dig, also known as the Blaumilch Canal. The film was written and directed by Ephraim Kishon and stars Bomba Tsur as the titular Blaumilch, an escaped mental patient with a mania for digging. When he finds a jackhammer in downtown Tel Aviv, he kicks off a chain of events that demonstrates the absurdity of bureaucracy. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen it, you have been warned. So, Morris, when was the first time you saw The Big Dig, and what did you think? I first saw The Big Dig, uh, I think, in the mid to late 80s on television. We have uh, a network here called SBS, and their charter, when they started in the early 80s, was to show as much as they could that was not in English. So they had a lot of European, uh, a lot of Asian films and TV shows. And from time to time, they'd throw on an Israeli movie. Uh, now, I was only vaguely familiar, I guess, with the name of Ephraim Kishon because my uh, mother and my sisters were both fans of his books. And I'd seen the book Look Back, Mrs. Lot, lying around the house and a couple of others. But Watching this film on television was uh, the first time I got to see his storytelling in action, and I just fell in love with it. I didn't actually know at the time you know, what the concept of bureaucracy meant, but this was like my full education in it. I think actually one of your um, previous guests uh, in maybe the last couple of months had mentioned uh, a reference to uh, the film The Twelve Tasks of Asterix. And there was a segment, The House That Sent You Mad. And I remember watching that as a kid and not having a clue as to what bureaucracy actually was. But uh, watching this, uh, it, it just, I thought, wow, is, is this what government departments are all about? But just the insanity, the ridiculousness of the situation, I just found it really, really appealing. And I absolutely loved it. And I'm so grateful that... By doing this episode, this is probably the first time I've had a chance to watch this in, well, since the late 80s, since I first watched it on television. And spoiler alert, I think I love it even more. How about you, Yaniv? Well, I'm from Israel, and over here, it's one of those films that you just know, like, in your blood. You've seen it by the time you're 10. You've probably seen it a bunch of times because it's the one of the most famous ones. And every year, there's Independence Day where... Uh, it's nothing but Israeli movies on TV, so everybody's seen it, and Frank Kishon used to be. I also, you know, saw it in the 80s because I was a kid in the 80s, and uh, he was still a really famous figure and uh, all that. But yeah, it was one of those one of those crazy films that you see as a kid and you can't believe uh, your eyes, and the unbelievable chaos that goes on, not to mention the fact that it's this great 60s time capsule, the, the, the clothes, the music. I love the music of this film. Mm. Uh, I love the score of this film. Um, yeah, it's uh, one of those crazy comic, one of those films you can't believe exists, really, and that it's Israeli. It's like doubly blowing your mind. And I, I just wanted to say that I wanted us to do an episode of this movie because, you know, I've been on this show three times before, and in those three episodes, we talked about Possibly three of the worst films ever made, not just in Israel, but in general. I mean, three movies on just the cusp of watchability, probably not watchable. I mean, let's face it. I mean, and they said, let's do one movie that's 
actually a fun movie that people can actually enjoy. And maybe some people who don't know it are going to discover it and enjoy it. And uh, yeah, for people who haven't seen it, there's a, uh, it's a really great surprise to, to find this movie, I think. Well, and it's not just this movie, but seeing everything that I have yet to see from Kishan is just fantastic. And I've really loved everything that I've seen. Yeah, um, of course, he's, he's more known as a humorist in writing. He was very, very prolific and very successful, uh, first as a columnist, and then later he uh, writing uh, stage shows and writing sketches for Israeli performers and comedy troops. Um, where he had tremendous, tremendous success in the fifties and sixties. And he was, and he just taught himself, uh, movie making. He was just that talented that he could, um, just picked up a, a super eight camera, did some, uh, experimented on his own, learned, taught himself editing, basic editing, better basic filmmaking. And, um, and this is his uh, third film, I think. Uh, and it's so accomplished. I mean, his two previous films are great films, but mostly in the writing and characterization. But this one, you can tell, and he, you know, storyboarded everything, scripted everything down to the last line by a last throwaway line by somebody in a passing car. There's great editing. There's great transitions and great comedy moments. Watching uh, for this show, I watched uh, Salah Shabati for the first time, and then watched. Uh, uh, Hashote uh, Azulay afterwards for the first time as well. And the progress from Salah Shabati to this one, and I don't know what was made in the middle, but it's a world away. I mean, Salah Shabati is a wonderful film and it's great to see Chaim Topol, uh, in an early role. I mean, everyone knows him for Filler on the Roof, but just watching that, there are some of the themes about identity and bureaucracy are still a very big concern for Frame Kishon, but in terms of how it's presented, it looks like a small film, and this definitely looks like a much larger film. That Salah Shabati could have been like a, a, a telemovie, but this is definitely a cinema movie in terms of uh, visual scope. Right, and actually Salah Shabati became an enormous hit in Israel. It was like the number of tickets sold, it was like as if everybody in the country watched it twice or something. It was so successful that he had a lot of leverage to make Alvinka and then to, to make this film later, which, again, a very expensive film and a color film for the first time, one of the first color films made in Israel. Just one of the ways that it was, like, trailblazing. I love that after uh, Salah Shabati, his wife is just like, yeah, no, it wasn't very good. All the critics were like, mm, no, not good at all. And then... Yeah, just took off. And I think it was even a little bit of a hit here in the U.S. too. I think it had an Oscar nomination, perhaps. And so did, uh, I, I mean, The Big Dig or Blau Milk Canal um, nominated for the Golden Globe. Then for The Policeman, this is one film after that. He won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film. It was nice to see Irvinka, just to see the policeman character who's in three of his films, at least, right. and then he acted in uh, at least one more. But to see that same character, and this is like an evolution of that character, and then, um, yeah, to see freaking Topol so young, it took me so long to figure out that it was him and Irvinka. I was just like, who is this guy? He looks so familiar. And then he like turned his head a certain way or just the tone of his voice hit me a certain way. And I was like, oh my God, it's Dr. Hans Zarkov. This is fantastic. Only Dr. Hans Zarkov, formerly at NASA, has provided any explanation. As I remember it, uh, there's this famous story, isn't there, when they were making the movie version of Fiddler on the Roof, 
and they were trying to cast it and and somebody said get me that old guy who played him who who you know that old guy and and they were convinced he was this old guy Salah Shabati is playing a character that's probably 30 years older than him and being completely convincing that's the picture that i have in my head of Topol because he looks as old if not older than he did as in uh fiddler on the roof well, that's how old he is now, and sometimes I see him at the post office, and uh, he looks like that now. Oh my God, that's fantastic! And I heard Kishon in an interview say that the reason Topol isn't in the big dig is just because at the time he was already a big star doing Fiddler on the Roof uh, in London on on stage, and that's why he's not in the movie. Well, I was really glad to see Bambatsur in this one because having known him mostly for uh, Big Gus, what's the fuss? Uh, another fantastic yeah. film that we talked about. <laughs> Being this great actor and and give show him in a movie that's actually a movie. And by the way, he's so great in this one because for you know for those who haven't seen it, he doesn't say anything. He says one word in the entire film, and he's in certain respects the main the central character of the, of the film. And uh, his performance is just legendary. And by the way, everybody is legendary. I think every single character is cast with by is played by such an amazing actor in this film. Would you guys agree? Absolutely. Oh, uh, hell yes. What this a is, cast. I mean, even if you don't know which one's the big stars or whatever, they're just all so hilarious. And every every line read is just so funny. Well, that's the thing. This film, where within the first few minutes, you think it's just going to be Bombardier's story, Blaumilch's story. It turns out that it's really a, an ensemble piece. And to my way of thinking, it's all the better for it. I'm glad that that was the approach to telling this story. He comes in, he's the eye in the hurricane. He goes and starts digging up Allenby Street, and it's how everyone frantically reacts around him. Uh, that's the real, that's a real story. And just sort of to your point a moment ago, uh, Yaniv, about, uh, the, he only has the one word in the film. Spoiler alert. It's to say his name. But in the original short story, I love how he, he also has the one word, and it's chamor, which um, the, the, which means, uh, for the English speaking word, it means donkey, ass. And I knew that the, the first time I went to Israel uh, and I crossed the road uh, you know, with a green light, and someone yelled out at me, chamor, and I thought, yes, I've arrived. It was fantastic. We like to treat the tourists very well. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, because being called a chamois, I was treated like a, like a sabre. You know, it's like, that you might have been kinder to me if I'd, uh, if, if the guy had known I was, I was the a. The guy uh, actually uh, went and researched you and your life and your dreams and made your dream come true. And you <laughs> Obviously. The movie starts with the title card, and the title card is one of the few things that's not translated. The translation, as far as I know, seems to be very good in the version that I saw, except for I wasn't sure if this is like a production company thing or what, but you say that this is a joke at the beginning of this? Well, as a subtitle guy, I, I take a lot of issue with the subtitles in this film, but okay, I'll, I won't go into that. But uh, yeah, no, there's a funny disclaimer at the beginning that they forgot the subtitle where it says... The first, the first card is just thank you to, you know, specific entities. And then the second one says, this film is a work of fiction and any similarity to uh, real people is purely coincidental, we hope. So not quite as blatant as Z's title card, but pretty close. Yeah, a bit gentler, a bit, a bit more understated. In contrast to the rest of the movie, I just love the first few minutes of this film, which are so quiet. And it, it has a cold open after that title card. We're just quiet and dawn, 
And it sets this very bizarre mood. It's almost like Blues Brothers. You know, Blues Brothers starts with this very yes, sequence yes. nothing like the rest of the film. But especially on rewatch, you know, you appreciate this quiet so much because you know how much chaos is going to come. So it's just like that. And um, just, you know, this guy digging a tunnel, escaping from the insane asylum and feeling this pneumatic drill. And then this title sequence of him just walking down the highway early in the morning, empty highway, as the credits roll. I don't know. I just love that sense of like early morning and uh, nobody knows Nobody knows what's coming to them. You mentioned before, uh, Yaniv, about how much you love the score for the film and that opening sequence while he's walking down the highway. Uh, we hear the score composed by uh, Noam Sharif, who I'd never heard of before, but um, the music that he composes over that introduction, it really gives off to me a vibe of uh, Henry Mancini's music for The Party. And it's very much... Uh, I'm wondering if he was listening to what was going on in Hollywood at the time. And, and, I wouldn't uh, be surprised. So cool, he's the guy who's known mostly as a classical composer. I don't think he scored any other mil- any other films besides this one, as far as I know. Hmm. I love that Blomage too also wears basically a straitjacket through the entire thing <laughs> until his pants fall off, and then he again they throw a blazer over it to make him look presentable. And then you get him, uh, you know, his pants fall off at one point, and then I think they just stay off for the rest of the movie. I also love, too, when he takes that drill and he's there on Allenby Street, and he goes down and is, like, feeling the ground and trying to find the exact right spot to drill. <laughs> it's just, he's he's very, very conscientious as far as this is the exact spot that I need to drill into the street. This guy takes digging seriously. I mean, digging is his life. Since he went off his rocker, that's all he can think about is where to dig, how to dig, how deep to dig, and how far to go. Well, yeah, I mean, that his nickname at the Psychiatric Institute was The Mole. The Mole has gone missing? Yeah, don't worry, we'll we'll find him. In a, in a parallel universe, he's a Batman villain. It's The Mole Man! Yes, it is I, the Great Mole Man. Welcome to my kingdom of subterranea. I should have known that island for sale ad was a trick. A trick that worked, I might add. (laughs) This is like a a few sentences from the original Kishon short story for The Big Dig. And it just sort of demonstrates how casual his short story writing is. You get these stories about... Um, chaos or what we'd read is being crazily mundane, but how normal it sort of seems in Kishon's storytelling world. So it says, at dawn, a small tent had been set up plump in the middle of the road and four rusty oil drums announced that men were at work. At 6 a.m., a middle-aged worker showed up dragging a brand new petrol-driven pneumatic drill. At 6.30, he started it up and broke the roadbed in a yard-wide X connecting the four corners of the crossroads. After that, he went for breakfast. Just that last line of the paragraph, after that he went for breakfast, it should be chaos was all consuming in the street. People were coming up saying, what the hell are you doing? But no, he starts digging up the road and then he went for breakfast. And that's just something that I really appreciate in all the short stories that I've read of Ephraim Kishon. Uh, you know, so years ago I read Look Back, Mrs. Lot, which that story comes from. And more recently, just to get in the feel for watching the movies again, I'd... Uh, went and read um, 
unfair to Goliath and no oil Moses. And it's, it's a consistent thing. His universe is you're re- you, you, on the one hand, you could read these stories and think, I don't believe this is happening. This is insane. But in Kishon's world, how he tells these stories, it's no, it's all normal. And you, you can go to the bank for a loan and you, they end up owing you money in, in terms of how they calculate the, the, to get the shorter interest time down and uh, just all sorts of crazy things. Um, but I just love that in a way he presents that same sort of world in his movies. He tells his stories in a similar way to how he writes his uh, short fiction as well. How was the, 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 the story? How did that change over the years? Was it short story, play, then movie, or was it short story, movie, then play? First of all, he wrote the original humorous piece that he wrote is first of all it's from 1952 which means that it's so old you know compared to this film and he he was 27 when he wrote it and again he was this insanely prolific guy so it was first this humorous piece that came out in the paper in 52 then in 1960 it was a radio play that i also listened to and had some i had some of the same actors in it and then the movie in 1968 or released film 68 released 69 and then the stage thing was just recent. It was from 2014 or something like that. And uh, it's not considered like, a, you know, it peaked when it peaked. It's, it's, it's more like a throwback uh, production. All right, because I know IMDb, which is usually the source of all truth for everything, just <laughs> says play next to it. So that's what made me think that it was a play before it was a movie. Maybe radio play? I don't know. Could be. Who knows? And it could just be that it's 100% bullshit. You'll have to go through a few committees to find out about that, though. But you're right as far as the silent versus the noise in this film. I mean, because within 10 minutes, this movie is insane. It goes from that nice, quiet, bucolic setting like you're talking about, and then the drilling starts within five minutes of this movie, and then the shouting and then the, the people shouting at each other. And then the, the once the policeman shows up and tries to be very, very helpful and start to set up a barricade, then you've got the traffic jam. And it just goes on and on and on. And it just sets the tone for this movie. So anytime we cut away from the street scene to anything else, it just becomes just like, oh, there's a little bit of quiet. Because otherwise, it is just an assault on the senses the whole time, which is wonderful. The policeman, played by Shaikh Ophir, he pretty much, he's the pivotal character at the start of the film in a way because what he does could have changed the, course, the whole course of the story. Of course, it'd be a much shorter film if he'd gone up to him and said, hey, what the hell are you doing? And then took him back to the, to the nut house. But it, I found it just hysterical that he sees uh, Blaumelch, and he just presumes, oh, he's doing what he has to do. And he spends the whole film sort of going up and asking him questions and talking to him like there's nothing wrong with him. But if, uh, he, but he then yells out abuse at the residents who are telling Blaumelch to stop doing what he's doing at 5.30 in the morning. And then he sets up roadblocks and tells the cars that they have to go back. And this is sort of establishing the fact that he doesn't really have a clue he's uh not a not in the visual sense but he, he's he's like Clouseau, doesn't have a clue but you know the pink panther movies are more about the visual slapstick this guy he's just 
just adult. Um, but I, I like, I mean, we'll probably sort of talk more about this later, but we get more, uh, shades of, you get a more well-rounded character in the policeman where we're sort of forced to see, well, what else is going on in his life besides his police work. But in this film, he's just, he's the dolt, but not in a slapstick sort of way. And I just, yeah, really enjoy that opening moment. If he'd done something different, the film would have been very different. He is the small example of the bureaucracy, which we're going to see just grow and grow and grow through this movie. He's just that little cog that helps move this larger and larger wheel of ineptitude. And it just takes him making this mistake at the beginning to just tumble the whole thing. Yeah, and I, and you gotta love all the bureaucrats, all the people at City Hall, and and these amazing names that he wrote for them: Doctor Kubiszewski and uh, Zelig, Zelig Schultheis. I don't, I don't know if they're real names, but they're like the weirdest names, you know, for these uh, Ashkenazi um, city officials. And uh, Shraga Friedman, the guy who plays um, Kubiszewski, you know, Ziegler's boss, he's just so hilarious, and for me. He's 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 a, a giant. He's you know the 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 guy, the leering boss with the sexy secretary, the guy who, uh, <laughs> who's gonna be you know he's gonna be a toady for the for the mayor, and then he's gonna but turn around to his underling and be like, yeah, see, I was a lion, and um, just an amazing an amazing com- comic performance from him. He he um, he died. It, it was his last film, I think. He died a year later. At the age of like 48, yeah. But all of these people were very famous on stage. You know, there was barely a film industry. So all of these people were, most of the cast of this film are big stars, but just from stage and radio, really. I also love that in the midst of all this chaos, we've already got the horns honking, all this stuff going off. And then the policeman has to take the time to turn around to the woman who's beating her rugs and be like, hey, not before eight o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, he's shouting it. People are trying to sleep. And you mentioned Ziegler, who is just this. I mean, how can we describe this guy? He wants to do right. He's also dating the daughter of one of the people who is being the most inconvenienced by this stuff, one of the neighbors. And he is working for what is he, a city planner, this guy that we were just talking about? Yeah, you know, they're made up departments. So. Yeah, he's a guy, he's a city hall guy, and his rival is more like a government uh, government office guy. Yeah, and it just, it goes so many levels deep, it's crazy, just how many of these people, and like, it becomes this whole, don't talk to me, talk to this guy, don't talk to him, talk to this other guy, so yeah, it's like you were saying, that uh, the whole idea of uh, just the bureau- bureaucratic hell of... Who needs to know this? Who can stop things? And once things start going, everybody either wants to take credit for it or start passing the buck and saying, no, it's not my fault. It's your fault. Right. Plus a lot of petty rivalries. Oh, they did this project and they didn't tell me because the the, the election's coming up and they're trying to gain points over there. So I'm going to do this over here, you know. 
I don't want to put you on the spot, but I am curious. You know, we've spent a lot of time this year talking about films from 1969 and especially looking at that through the lens of what had happened in 1968. Obviously, I'm more familiar with the U.S. history. I know a little bit of the French history, the Japanese history. But what was going on in Israel around this time? Were there the same types of protests and upset and those kind of things that were happening in the rest of the world at the same time? 67 was a giant war where Israel had a huge victory. So uh, there was a, a lot of um, sort of euphoria and uh, feeling of invincibility. That's how it's usually portrayed in hindsight. But in general, any, you know, you look at movies from the late 60s from anywhere in the world, they're always full of this insane creative energy, creative, destructive, buzz vibes, you know. So uh, it's, it's part of that. It's part of that. And with, with this crazy, you know, swinging score, it also sounds kind of swinging London-ish a bit. It sounds sort of, you know, orchestral, but uh, sort of swinging and um, sort of jazzy. If you want perspective at, because Kishan, the, the thing about Kishan is he's this Hungarian guy who, you know, his name was Ferenc Kishont. That was the, and Ephraim Kishon is like the Hebrewified version of his name. And he, you know, if you ever look at interviews with him, he, he retained this very deep Hungarian accent. So he was, he was, you couldn't mistake him for, for a person born in Israel. He was obviously an East European guy or Central European guy. Um, who brought a brand of of humor that existed in Hungary and adapted it to Israel and and learned and then completely mastered the Hebrew language. An aspect of this that's lost on you guys is that what he this guy is doing with the Hebrew language because he's spoofing. There's a lot of laugh lines in this movie just for people who speak Hebrew because he's spoofing the way people talk. So even sometimes just the the way, not the content of the phrase, but just the way that it's said and the weird phrasing that like a city official uses is just comical um so um if you want historical perspective it's interesting to look at the at, through the prism of of kishon as a guy because he was a guy who came to israel had huge success for a while but had more success actually in europe and uh, elsewhere and the later part of his life he kept going back he was basically living half the time in switzerland he felt like he wasn't well enough respected in Israel, and he was a guy who never really became a part. He wasn't an, ins an insider in Israel. He was always an outsider. And this outsider's perspective is what gives him the ability to make these movies, which are, you know, such biting satires, either of bureaucracy or, uh, you know, the life of an immigrant. You know, Salah Shabbat is a movie about an immigrant coming to Israel. Good segue to something I wanted to ask you about uh, the comparison between i can't necessarily talk about israeli cinema uh as solely what kishon was doing because you know, obviously other films were being made but that's as much as my frame of reference from that time so you know the it seems like a lot of what i've seen from contemporary israeli cinema and kishon's israeli cinema is about identity and you've already gone and said about uh, the feelings of uh, new immigrants Contemporary Israeli cinema seems to be far more dark. I mean, you know, when you watch, you know, take films like, you know, Beaufort or Foxtrot or Big Bad Wolves or Walk on Water, they're looking at Israel, but more from, you know, where are we in the world today? Whereas. Well, there's a very simple answer to that, which is that the dark specter of the last few decades in Israel is the occupation. And the occupation started in 67. 
in that infamous war that I alluded to earlier. So um, the, the more recent Israeli cinema, for sure, stuff like Foxtrot and uh, Walter Bashir and stuff, it's all referencing how wrong this country is going and how decade, year after year, decade after decade, these problems are not being solved. So that's like a morass, you know, a morass that's growing uh, over the years. So if you go back to 1968, uh, that's either not a concern at all, or, you know, you can talk about municipal, you, you can talk about municipal uh, follies. Um, you know, you can afford to be um, not as dark. Because you have more of, again, the, the, in 1968, the state of Israel is 20 years old and not occupying, actively occupying uh, people with uh, no, no right to vote and no state. So, as, uh, <laughs> to say the least, a simpler time. So are there no films that are being made nowadays? I mean, like, I, I saw a film which still maybe could have combined the two, uh, you know, the two issues of, uh, uh, the Palestinians and, and the Israelis, but in a humorous and sort of in a bureaucratic way and people trying to take credit for things, which was uh, Tel Aviv on fire. Um, or you get a, a gentler film from a few years ago called The Band's Visit. I'm not necessarily saying they could have been made back in the late 60s, but they sort of seem to be outliers from everything else that seems to be made nowadays. So I, I'm just sort of curious, are there any filmmakers who are making things that are just purely, here's the ridiculousness of daily life or is it constant uh, is ever because we are obviously down here we're only getting like a small sample of what uh israeli cinema is putting out so but uh are all films like uh beaufort or or walk on water and the like well the examples you're giving are all movies that re reference palestinians and arabs in the actual plot and uh if you talk about something like uh, the big dig there isn't an arabic speaking or an Arab character in the film. No, but I'm sorry, are there more films that are being made nowadays that don't? Spoof of the Zionist project, and there was plenty to spoof even without bringing in uh, our neighbors. Look, obviously, the Israel in its early days is a, is a project, you know, an experiment in making a state from peoples from a million different countries who speak a ton of different languages, and you need to do this, this very 20th century thing of... Uh, uh, let's create a national identity and ideals and, uh, you know, heroes and, um, and everybody's going to change their name to a Hebrew name and, um, and let's go out and dry, you know, drain the swamps, the literal swamps and, uh, you know, plant trees in the desert and all this stuff. So this is all the stuff that he's spoofing. Um, and, uh, if we can, you know, we were spoiling the film. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a movie about a disaster, which rather than being stopped, is aided and abetted by everybody just through inaction, stupidity, and ineptitude. And at the end of the day, somebody cuts a ribbon and uh, look, it's our great success, you know. I mean, and coupled with the fact that it's a guy who basically left Israel and went to live in Switzerland. And, the, you know, the, the supposed protagonist ends up uh, in, a, in the insane asylum instead of the crazy person. Um, yeah, even that doesn't draw, you know, it's not a very optimistic, uh, parable anyway, you cut it. I know that this was shot on a massive set and 
that they created this version of Allenby Street, that they created all of these buildings that are around there. So it gives me pause when I look at the set dressings and I see things and I'm just like, well, it seems to me that there is no coincidence when it comes to what's there because they built it all. So seeing behind Blaumich so many times the figure of uh, Charlton Heston as Moses carrying the Ten Commandments, I'm just like, I'm thinking that there's some sort of connection going on here. Right. Well, I, I mean, there was a movie theater there, the Mugrabi Theater, that uh, I, I never lived to see it because it burned down, I think, in the 70s or 80s. But at the time, it was there, and it was a movie theater. So I guess he didn't want to do a, you know, he said, uh, oh, let's just put like a classic film that I don't know maybe if they re-released it theatrically in Israel or not. But yeah, it's it's uh, for sure not a coincidence. And you're right, as far as the guy and his secretary, I'm so reminded of um, Governor Le Petamain from uh, <laughs> from Blazing Saddles, and just the way that he continues to ogle her and that he will start to give bad um, dictation as he's looking at her legs and things. There's just so many good moments. There's so many good sight gags. Like even in that office building, the way that people will stick their heads out of the doors when the mayor is coming in and then when the minister of transportation is coming in, it's just, uh, and they're all just standing there like giggling almost in the hallway waiting for the ax to fall in this guy's head because he's probably just a pain in the ass to work with when i watch this movie he, it looks like he took very special care to not bore you at all ever always sticking in a little side gag or a sound gag or a funny cut one of the beautiful things about this film i might have mentioned this earlier is that there is a combination of the ridiculousness the absurdity of the situation and the the verbal gags but there are the visual things as well, and you know, just as, as you say, there's lots of little things. And I noticed, like, I think in one bit where the residents who finally decide that they're going to obstruct justice, or not, they they decide that they're going to sabotage the bulldozers and the like. Uh, they um and they end up getting arrested. So um the the policeman brings him into uh, Lefkowitz's office. This one woman sabotages the bulldozer. She opens the gas tank. And she puts tiny little sugar lumps in the gas tank. I got that, yes. And at the end, she sort of stirs it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that gag so much. No, that that actually did not escape my my visual. I'll tell you off air later why. But um, there was – but just the moment where the policeman brings his – superintendent into the office and he's explaining to him, this is what they've gone and done. They've done sabotage. And then he just – takes it takes his hand and he uh, whisks away some dust on Lefkowitz's shirt just this little thing you know it's just a visual visual gag but it explains so much about who he is you know he's not just doing his duty but he's also really a little bit of a brown nose uh, as it were you know you know even the policeman himself he's constantly sort of trying to you know put his cap on straight and you know, tell somebody else to button his shirt. Like, you know, the, the yes. important things don't, they, they don't escape them. Well, that scene, just the 
bringing in of all of these uh, poor people that live on Allenby Street and who have been just terrorized by all the noise. Because to your point, once Blumich starts to dig, it eventually becomes a public works project. So it's not him alone. It's him with his jackhammer still. But then he's joined by all of those other guys who are now digging, have no plans. There's no plans written up about this stuff at all, of course. And they're just digging to dig as well. And it just becomes bigger and bigger and more and more of a mess. Um, and yeah, these poor people who have just been terrorized now by all of this noise happening and them at the police station after they've been caught uh, with this uh, domestic terrorism explaining why they are doing this. And it just becomes, again, more and more chaos of them adding to this chorus and it, it the 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 score to this the the soundtrack the all the the sound effects itself everything just comes together so well and this scene i think is probably the best example of that oh it's orchestrated so well as one by one they all come up with their little noises it's like an orchestra it's so marvelous and i love that the cop joins in too he can't help himself I love the couple that is disturbed and, but then they get so used to having the noise outside that at the end, after the noise is gone, they have a tape recording of construction noise so they can continue to make love. It's the scene where they're inaugurating the, the canal and everything. It's like they, they'd rather hear the jackhammer than this jackass talking on the microphone. <laughs> that whole, like everyone's just shaking each other's hands and haven't we done this wonderful thing rather than this is the biggest disaster that we've had in forever that they knock out the telephone lines the electricity everything everything has just gone completely haywire but then at the end they just pretend oh yeah this was the plan all along and again if you need the, if you want the historical and cultural context i mean he lays it on thick with the Zionist stuff, you know, it says, if you will it, there is no dream on a giant banner behind them, which is, you know, the Herzl quote. Anybody who ever saw The Big Lebowski also knows. If you will it, there is no dream. You know, the mayor with all the platitudes of how this is part of this amazing project and, uh, you know, fulfilling the prophecies of our elders and this and that. Uh, you couldn't miss it. If you, if you lived in Israel in those times, your life was so inundated with this kind of socialist uh, antiquated propaganda on a daily basis yeah no it, it, the point wasn't lost on anybody this movie from 1969 like pretty much every movie we've talked about this year so far holds up and these jokes do not get old i may be missing probably at least 25 percent, if not more just based upon our conversation today hearing about some of the the, the uses of the dialogue you know kind of reminds me of like billy wilder coming in and learning english and then using all these uh interesting phrases in his films it sounds like Keyshawn was kind of doing the same thing you know i'm missing a lot but i'm sure laughing at this and i've watched this film now three times and it is just a delight every single time. We've been talking about the big bureaucracy, but there was one moment that made me think very much, oh, yeah, public service tradition. So where um, Schultheis, with his secretary, storms into Kobyshevsky's office to say, what is it that you're going and blaming me for in terms of what's happening in Allenby Street? Uh, we haven't got the plans. What the hell are you talking about? And they're having this 
big yelling match at each other. A bell rings and then everything stops because tea and biscuits have arrived. Five minutes later, they finish their tea and biscuits. They get up and then they start yelling at each other again. But everything turns civil. Everything stops for morning tea and biscuits. And I'm trying to think, like, I watch the cinematography for that scene because there's a lot of close-ups of the lip smacking and as they drink the tea and it's they're all so delighted to be drinking tea and eating the biscuits and I think secretary chewing gum but it's all close-ups of their face all close-ups of their mouths and I can't help thinking that it it's been done in another film that I've seen but I can't think of what it's been driving me crazy does it is there any other film that you guys can think of that food related you get those close-ups it's almost a erotic dare i say hmm. but I'm, I'm trying to think does that remind you of any specific film or daisies maybe that's like from the same year or year before something like that a lot of that 60s stuff i mean everybody who ever saw a godard film started making crazy cuts and close-ups right yeah i can't think of any particular food fetish type scene that that might be uh similar to but, um, I mean, the whole idea of we're just all going to stop, have our tea, and then once that's over, we'll continue. I mean, that felt very familiar as well. Well, time's a-wasting, Sam. Yep, another day, another dollar. And I just also, I mean, in contrast to everything we're saying, and how verbose everything is and noisy, I just can't say enough about Gombatsu, how great he is in this silent, silent performance. And I also just love how they made him. I mean, obviously, he's the, he's the inciting incident of this whole movie, and he's this disaster. But he's also is such a childlike guy. And whenever somebody, it looks like somebody's going to, you know, give him what for, he's like, oh, no, he's like trying to sort of, like he's acting like a four-year-old who's caught with his hand in the cookie jar. He's such a, almost like a Chaplinesque uh, character, like such a sad, you know, and at the end, he thinks he's about to get credit for the big thing, but they bring up the mayor and he's disappointed. You know, he doesn't get the credit for it. Um, I love how, how instead of making him just like a crazy antagonist, he's also so sweet. He's actually even maybe more relatable at the end than, than Siegel, who's the, the, the truth teller guy that nobody believes. He's, he's funny and scary and pathetic and endearing. He's all these different things without without using words. Um, a lesser actor couldn't have pulled it off, and it's it's. I just love it. He's got a wonderfully expressive face. That's I think the secret to it all. And you, you mentioned about his childlike persona, but there's that scene earlier on in the film where these school children are crossing the street and they're having a laugh at him and while he's digging and then his pants drop and he dances around with them and they're all having fun. And it's just like, yeah, these are my people. These children are my people. And they, they, they welcome him. And so yeah, definitely much a, a childlike figure. I also found it very interesting that they cut from a shot of him with this little red haired boy and they're both smiling and happy. And then they cut to one of the bureaucrats face almost at the exact same angle and he's frowning and it's just like okay this is interesting how he is just so carefree but the bureaucrats are all just miserable human beings the more i think about it it's it just works more and more as a as a allegory for the whole zionist project like maybe maybe there was a spark of something pure and nice and underneath it all before it all went so terribly terribly wrong 
There is a moment, though, when Ziegler goes out to investigate what's going on, and he finds the little shack where Blaumilk should be, and it feels like we move into a horror movie for just a few seconds. Right. He's so scary in that one scene. He's a horror character. And I love that. He goes in, and he finds the bed, and it's the, the jackhammer in the bed. <laughs> right. And then, and then he comes in, and he introduces it as Mrs. Blaumilk. And by the way, uh, blau milk does literally mean blue milk. And the um, German title of this film is Der blau milk canal, which means the blue milk canal, which I just love that. It's just such a great surreal image. Well, and I think it also plays into where the film eventually goes, which is obviously because of the word canal. But being a foreigner, I had no idea until uh, Ziegler starts doing his investigation, and it's just like, we're getting so close to these bodies of water that if we don't stop, the you know the entire Allenby Street is going to become this canal. And when that floodgate finally opens, it becomes this, almost this mini Armageddon of just all this water the the one wonderful shot that i always go back to is that fish on the street and just there like gasping for air and then flops over i mean it you just can't get better than that i think it's that scene that made me sort of realize just how much of a progression that Kishon had made as a filmmaker from salah shabati to this i mean this that scene looked like it was uh and maybe you know, in, in preparation for an Irwin Allen disaster film, the Poseidon Adventure, you know, look out. You know, yeah, that fish was also in the Poseidon Adventure. Oh, it, it was a stunt fish. Oh, yeah, I saw that on IMDb. <laughs> it went to the Royal Academy of Arts, that fish. I think it later showed up in a Faith No More video. I think that was his last performance before it passed away. There was another scene that I really loved, in, uh, which sort of reminded me a lot of um, – there, there was an American – a comedy record that I heard years and years ago played over and over and over again uh, called You Don't Have to Be Jewish. And there's uh, it's just full of all these great little comedy sketches. And one of them is called uh, Bondstein. Um, so, you know, about, uh, you know, the Jewish equivalent of James Bond and how he's nagged by his mother and yada, yada, all those other sort of uh, uh, Jewish mother tropes that they had. But basically, the the sketch revolves around James Bonstein coming from Israel to New York, and he has to make contact with a uh, w- with another spy at this particular address. But there are two of them uh, he, he sees on the apartment addresses. He doesn't know which one he's going to make contact with. I can't remember what the name of the contact is. Now to find my contact, Muskowitz. J-K-L-M. Here it is. Moskowitz. A. Moskowitz. Uh-uh. Look. J. Moskowitz. Oh, I'm in trouble. Two Moskowitzes. One of them is my spy contact, and the other? Who knows? Oh, what shall I do? There's not enough time to call Gimmel. I can't wait until tomorrow, and his mother won't let him accept calls on Saturday. <laughs> I'll have to take a chance. I'll take this one. I'll just press his bell and see what happens. Yes, what is it? What can I do for you? Are you Moskowitz? I am Moskowitz. Give me an egg cream, please. Oh, you are Moskowitz the spy, second floor in the back. <laughs> this moment in the film 
where um, Ziegler is going to the department that Schultheis runs to try and obtain the plans that Kobyshevsky thinks are running the 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 dig up of uh, Allenby Street, and he comes in wearing the black trench coat and the black hat, and and the, we even get the Peter Gunn sounding music in the background, and we sort of think, right, well, there's this whole spy element, and he's trying to be very very secretive. He walks into the room, and the the cleaner says, uh, "Excuse me, what are you here doing?" He's, "Oh." Uh, uh, I'm, I'm just looking for some plans. Oh, and then everyone comes in from the department all to try and help him. And it just sort of reminded me of that sketch because it just seemed so far-fetched, so ridiculous that there's no secrets. Everyone's, nothing is under lock and key like it would be nowadays. It's everything, just this whole notion that everyone knows Everyone's got their nose in everything. Everyone that there's, uh, this is the equivalent of, oh, yeah, you want the spy out the back. Yeah, we got the secret plans over here. Oh, no, no, the secret plans are over there. It's just very, very funny scene to me. Well, I love when they take those plans and they've got the guy there who's reading them and he's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is a good one. And he starts like going through all these things and then you finally realize that it's not the plan of what the street is. You know, it's like a whole other thing. And then he goes through and like finds another one. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember this and starts going through again. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is where the, this is where the planes take off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I am reminded every time I see Blau Milk, even though I know I've seen him in other films, he reminds me of like a little bit chubbier of a Norman Mailer. So maybe that's why I think that he like looks a little menacing at times, you know, like I keep waiting for him to start picking a fight with Gore Vidal. Have we discussed much about the final scene? I, I just love how you know everything has become so normalized uh, after spending so much time in the film, everyone's sort of trying to work out who's responsible, who's responsible. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. And then by the end, once the street has the ocean run into it and it becomes this canal, they think, oh, well, now everyone's going to take credit for it. And uh, the the mayor gives a speech and says, I want to thank, and it's not Blaumelch. He wants to thank every other person who, uh, we get the hypocrisy, everyone sort of at each other's throats during the rest of the film. And at this point, we get Schultheis and Kobyshevsky hugging each other. We have uh, Ziegler, who's finally realized that this is all one big mistake. And it, it's like he, he's calling out, the emperor has no clothes. Or in this case, the emperor has no pants. The truth they can't handle the truth, so he's decided they push him aside because it's not convenient for them. And I just love how that it all comes to a head in that penultimate scene in the film. And they they say we're going to make this street; it's going to be uh, the Venice of the Middle East. And uh, every everyone applauds that, and we see the the ridiculousness of uh, the cigar chomping conductor with the orchestra and. Uh, Already there's traffic build up with these, uh, with, with the canoes as they're sort of going up, up Allenby Canal and they're already sort of waving their fists at each other. So it's, you know, it, it's even at the opening and, uh, traffic chaos still sort of reigns in, in the middle of Tel Aviv. And maybe one small, another small moment that I loved was, cause you know, you watch this in 20, in the year 2020 and, uh, all the, you know, objectification of the, of the sexy secretary and all that. You cringe just a tiny bit, but then there's this other moment that's just nice when during the unveiling and everything, and and the mayor is presented with a bouquet of flowers from this little girl, the the representative of the children of Tel Aviv, 
and she gives him the flowers and he tries to sort of pinch her, her cheek or something. And she's like, no, what are you doing? She like grabs the flowers back and runs away. <laughs> so in a small, tiny way, she's one of the heroes of this film. Like she wouldn't put up with this bullshit from this uh, elected official. The elected official, the mayor who has to be, I mean, is the guy even five feet tall? Yeah, he's teeny. It's super teeny. And then he's got the, we've got the visual gag. Every time he shows up, his like bodyguard or whoever this guy is, is always with him. And those awesome shots of those two framing the minister of, of, of transport. Uh, and they've got the bald heads and then the pictures above them that have the, 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 the with the, the two guys that have the, you know, facial hair and the, and with hair on their head. I mean, just the framing of that is just wonderful. Yeah. An- another tiny little gag that was, you guys were maybe robbed of was when, when the mayor goes to inspect the dig. Uh, they're still painting the last letter on the on the banner, even as it's hanging up. So the subtitle should basically read, uh, Welcome the Mayo. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break. And when we return, we'll come back with an interview with Rafi Kishan, the son of Ephraim Kishan. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream, art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, Four eight two zero one. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. It's not easy having a good time. 
and it's not cheap either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Where did you grow up at? I'm in Israel, actually, in Tel Aviv. I was born in Tel Aviv. Uh, my my, my uh, parents divorced when I was one year, and I lived uh, then later in Ramat Gan. It's like a, that's a suburb of Tel Aviv, or a city near, near Tel Aviv. And my father was living in Tel Aviv, and I was always in, in good contact with him. I saw him once a week, sometimes more. And actually, we had a very good contact, although it, it, I, I came from a divorced family. When did you realize that your dad was known outside of just your family? It never played such an important role. Uh, uh, for me, it was a normal father is going to work, sometimes is uh, flying to the States, coming back with the Golden Globe. It, it seems to be... Uh, a normal, uh, a normal uh, working day of every father. I didn't notice that he's such a, let's say, a, a genie. Yes, only, only actually after after he after he died 15 years ago, and I began to to have a a show about him. It began as a lecture. It began in the. National Theater of Israel, the, the best theater, the Camry, they they played again a theater play of him that is called Haktuba in Hebrew. I think it's called the the marriage marriage shine marriage license marriage license. It's a classic, very good play of him that was known all over the world. In South Korea, in all Europe, in, in, in Turkey, it was in, in Turkey it was a huge success. 
And um, they wanted to bring it again, this play. Although it was written 15 years ago, uh, they gave the the play to a very known uh, Israeli stand-upist and humor writer and, and also a movie maker. And then they asked him to to read it and uh, to uh, to make some uh, some changes so it would be more actual and, and better. He read it and he told them, "If you change one word, you are idiots. It's perfect." And that's what they did, and it was a huge success. It ran like 500 uh, times in, in Tel Aviv. Uh, and in Israel. Anyway, when they began with this project, they asked me one day that I, I will give also a, a lecture about my father in, in this occasion. And I began, you know, like uh, 10, 10 things that you maybe didn't know about Ephraim Kishon. And I noticed that uh, that it is, uh, first of all, very interesting, and second, very funny. And I'm also, I, I had a lot of experience in the media, and lecturing, and although it was uh, uh, mainly about my work as a veterinarian and about animals, but uh, I, 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 it, it was very successful and people liked it. And so I developed a lecture and later a real show in, in a like a, st- a stand up, uh, like stand up with a lot of uh, funny stories. And I'm uh, spinning uh, short pieces from his movies. With all the stories uh, beyond it, so it is a, a, a one and a half hour that is a really a very big success, and I'm running with it all over uh, in Israel. Only when I began to deal with all his work and his life, and so so only then I noticed that uh, how how amazing is his story. Yeah? That he, he was a Holocaust survivor, and then a communism survivor in Hungary. He came to Israel in the age of 25 without knowing one word Hebrew. He came, first of all, to the Ma'abara. Ma'abara is like a, a transport lager. New, new immigrants came there for a while, and then he went to the kibbutz. And, and he, he knew this uh, special Israeli system of the kibbutz. And then he, he, in the kibbutz, he decided, although he began to write short uh, humoristic story, as he made also in Hungary, he worked in a known Hungarian humor uh, newspaper called Ludash Mati. Um, to all our uh, Hungarian uh, listeners, I apologize that I... They will correct me and say, it's not Mati, it's Moti. You said Mati, Moti. That's the Hungarian. You cannot speak Hungarian if you have, don't have a throat built in in Hungary. It's a very <laughs> very difficult accent. Anyway, this accent my father had all, all his life, and he didn't like it when the Israeli left about his accent. But that is the only thing I think that he didn't achieve and, and, and couldn't make in a perfect way. He wrote at the beginning in, in Hungarian language. There were very known Israeli uh, Hungarian newspaper um, and uh, called Uykelet. Uh, but uh, after a while, he decided that not he don't want to stay a Hungarian uh, writer. He want to be an Israeli writer and write Hebrew, and he will learn the. Hebrew language, and he began to do a crazy thing. He decided to learn the dictionary 
from A to Z, all the words and all the expressions to learn it. Uh, and it began to learn every day like uh, 30 or 50 words and expressions. And, and he made it. At the end, he knew Hebrew better than all the Israelis. And then later, he, he closed himself like in a, a monastery. He closed himself in a Hebrew, a, a, it's called Ulpan, where the new immigrants learned Hebrew. And he learned one year all the grammar and the Hebrew language. And you know, it's, a, it, it's crazy because it's a, a different letters, different system, it's a Semitic language. And at the end, he was so good in it that not only did he write on a very good Hebrew, but he invented new Hebrew, the Kishon Hebrew, and invented the expression and words, and he was playing with the with the language. And till today, generation of of writers and Humo writers are trying to to copy Kishon, yes, and his his brilliant uh, and his brilliant way of writing. It sounds like he was very much an autodidact, and I've heard that he taught himself filmmaking. Yes, autodidact, that's the word. The, the only thing that he learned uh, officially in his life was the uh, art, and uh, especially uh, metal, uh, working with metal, sculpturing, metal sculpturing, let's say. That is the only thing that he learned in in uh, in, in, in university or something for a short time. All other things... He learned himself, and the same was making movies. But it is also amazing. He uh, began writing. Uh, he was in a some humor group of the military called Lehakata Nachal. It was a very famous group, uh, the best uh, actors and, and 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 funny guys of Israel, soldiers, and they invited him to write for them, uh, and. Uh, the, the the nice story is that he he brought to them one day the story about Salah Shabbati. Yes, my father came from Europe, and here in Israel he met the Jewish people, the Israelis that came from Arabic uh, countries called Mizrahim. Yes, he met them, and he he, he saw that they have a little bit uh, different the traditions, different food, different music. Uh, some of the Europe Israelis, and especially the establishment, uh, they were a little bit looked at the, those Jews from Arabic land from above down. Yes, they they looked at them as they are uh, less uh, cultured and, and like this. A little bit, uh, it was not so, not so nice. But my father looked at them and said, "What do you want? They they have their own." Tradition, okay, and the food and the music, but they are wonderful Zionistic Jews. They love the country very much. They work here, they settle here, they fight in the army. They are wonderful Jews. And he noticed that there is some uh, some discrimination of them, and this bothered him. That, that that's a, a a huge achievement of him. That he, the Hungarian Jew, he saw. This problem exactly, and he described it beginning with a small sketch that he wrote for this group of the Nachal about the the about the social worker, a woman that came to this Mahabara, to this camp, 
trying to fill some papers for uh, the government, and she met the Salah Shabbati. Salah Shabbati is the name of a Jew coming from an Arabic country, and she tried to, to fill the paper, and uh, she asked him questions, and he answered the <laughs> answers that she didn't understand exactly, and she didn't know what to write, and she was really, uh, really uh, uh, aggravated and almost cried. And uh, Salah Shabbati, that was a very, he was, Salah Shabbati is like Tuvia, the milkman, you know, in the fiddler on the roof, or like, uh, how do you call it, the, the soldier Shveik, uh, or Zorba, the Greek, or Falstaff, a, 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 a simple guy, but he's really been a, a clever one, and a, a moralic one, yes, and he's fighting against the, the establishment, the And 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 he be try he was very nice to her and tried to help her yes Salah right and 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 this Chaim Topol the famous so Chaim Topol he was in this group he he brought my father and, and my father brought this sketch to Chaim Topol he read it he reads it and he told my father look Herkishon uh, uh, with all the respect it's very nice that you are dealing with the problems of our brothers from the Arabic countries. Uh, and you are writing this sketch that you call it sketch, but it's a very sad story. We are not going to to play it uh, in front of the audience because the audience will stand up and leave the the theater. <laughs> yes, it's not funny. It's sad, and this and in that way, all the group said we don't want to 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 do this play. So my father told them, if you think like this, so I will go home. You don't understand my humor. You are idiots, he told them. They, they told him, you, are, you don't call us idiots. We are here the masters of humor in Israel. We are the Leakat Anachal. We are the group that makes the best humor in Israel. We know better than everyone what is the, the, the best humor here for the Israelis. Who are you, a Hungarian, Ige Mige, that don't understand anything. We don't want this. But uh, after he uh, said he's going to leave, they said, okay, okay, Topol said, I'm, I'm giving you one chance just to show you who is right. In two weeks, we have a great show in Haifa, very important. And Topol said very uh, honestly, I came on the stage. For me, where one actor, she was the social worker, and I begin this text. This sad text, this melancholic text, a text, this heavy text, and somehow the public, the audience, begin to laugh hysterically. Huge laugh. All the 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 ceiling was was, was shaking for it. Was, the audience was so laughing and and shouting and clutching at everything. <laughs> and Topol said, I, "I I didn't understand. I thought it's so so." Uh, That it is so uh, not not funny. After the show, all the group stands uh, in half a cycle. My father stands, out, of course, proud as a peacock. Yes, after uh, the audience were uh, were out of of it, it, it was a, such a huge success. And because his Europe good manners, he told them only a very short sentence. He told them, I told you, you are idiots. <laughs> and that's it. That's the way the Topol tells it. He, he didn't have to tell any more. 
I, I told you you are idiots and you understood. Of course, we are idiots and you are a genie. You, you understand the, the, the humor much more than us. You write better humor than us. And so they, they began to work with him. And six, the, six years they worked together, three years in the military as this humor group. And then also in the civil world, it's called Batsal Yarok, they didn't continue. And then after such a, a, a successful six years, uh, my father told to Topol, you know what? Let's do a movie. You know, I like movies very much from the time that I was a child. And uh, I will uh, I will write the, uh, the play screen and I w- want to direct the movie also. So Topol began to laugh. He said, Ephraim, what do you think? So to make movies, it's like to write a sketch or, or, or a small theater uh, play. No, it's a very, very complicated. I made two movies and it was a huge... Uh, uh, miss, uh, miss success. It, it was a huge uh, failure, and, and and people lost all the money and everything. It's very difficult to make movies. You never learned it. How do you think you will make a movie? I'm said my father with his heavy Hungarian accent. An intelligent man can do everything with success, although if he didn't learn it in the university or something. So, oh, okay, Chaim Topol said, okay, let's do the movie. My father came to the first day in the Herzliya studios and shouted, action! And this is the only thing that he knew about movie making. But he wrote a brilliant, brilliant screenplay, brilliant. And he had a very, he was a very talented. And they had also, let's say they were very clever because they brought from the States a very efficient staff. You know who was the the, the cameraman of of Salah Shabati? Floyd Floyd Crosby, known and nominated uh, uh, director of 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 uh, photograph of uh, of also uh, how it called this film with uh, Gary Cooper High Noon or something like this. Yes, and and he came and also his wife that was also expert in. in in this, uh, in the technical thing, and they they helped, of course, the film to be a, a also technically a very modern and good film. It was the first Israeli film that was nominated for the Oscar uh, in in the year of uh, uh, 40, uh, 64, 1964. It was the first Israeli movie that won the Golden Globe, the the first and only Israeli film that won. Uh, two Golden Globe. Also, Chaim Topol, the player, got the Golden Globe, and he, he won also the Golden Gate, the Golden Gate Prize. Maybe two uh, Golden Gate prizes and another prize. And, I, and, and in these days, the, the Israeli film industry it was something primitive and nothing, and suddenly is coming this guy that, that, that came like a. Uh, 13 years before he came to Israel without knowing one word Hebrew and here he is coming with the Golden Globe with the Oscar nomination it was amazing and later after this big success my father got appetite for the movie making Uh, parallel by the way he wrote uh, his plays yes he wrote also theater plays 
But then he made his movie, a, a movie called Arbinka. It was also black and white, like Salah Shabati. He made the Arbinka, also with Chaim Topol. And there, there was a, also an Israeli a actor called Shaike Ophir, that had a small part as a policeman. A policeman that it is not so successful, like a funny guy and... A, And uh, uh, this film was very, very, I respect, actually, Ervin K, that's the, the right pronouncement, but the Israelis call it Arbinka. So uh, after Arbinka, after three years, he made another film called The Blaumich Kanal. It's called The Big Big. In Hebrew, it's called The Blaumich Kanal. Uh, Blaumich Kanal. Uh, he's also very known in the... Uh, German spoken uh, lens this film and this was a brilliant satire against the bureaucrats the the bloody uh, the idiots bureaucrats that are managing our life that don't understand what happened between right hand and left hand the story is funny uh, uh, some crazy guy uh, runs away from the loony, loony bin yes And he 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 uh, he takes uh, he finds a jackhammer exactly, and he comes to uh, to the main street of Tel Aviv and begins to dig a hole with this jackhammer that he that he was finding, and uh, and the city government or the people they are sure that this is a project of the city government. And they don't, uh, they begin to help him, like in a kind of mistake, and begin to dig with him. At the end, there is a, 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 a canal from the sea into the Allenby Street in the middle of Tel Aviv, and boats are <laughs> sailing there, and Tel Aviv is becoming to be the medic of, the, of, of this area. And, and this was also a very successful film was uh, nominated for the Golden Globe. And uh, and after the, there, uh, the player, uh, Shaiki Ophir, is playing also a policeman. Fantastic play, a role. And after it, my father decided to write a film only for this Shaiki Ophir as a, as a policeman. And he writes the film that called The Policeman, In Hebrew, it's called the policeman Azulai. Azulai it is his name. It's about a nice guy, a policist that is uh, trying. He wants to be a good policist. He's trying, but uh, the things are not going so easy for him. Uh, Shaiki Ophiri is there achieving one of the, the highest achievements of a player in a movie in Israel. And the film itself was nominated for the Oscar and won the Golden Globe again. And uh, not bad, let's say, for someone that never learned to make uh, movies and, and, and uh, films. This is a very beloved and known film in Israel. And also the music is fantastic. A very known Israeli music writer, uh, Nurit Hirsch, woman, Nurit Hirsch. She wrote the music and it is a, a wonderful film. You know, we think uh, the family and actually... Uh, It was still in the in my father's life that he got uh, actually 
the Warner Brothers, I think, they were interested in remaking the, the policeman, make a, to make a remake of the film. And till, till now, we are still trying to find a, a way to make a remake of one of uh, these both films can be very successful in the States or in Europe, or the policeman or the big dig. Both of them, you can make a wonderful new film with this uh, brilliant uh, play script. And, and uh, you know, that it's filmed, that there are films that were nominated with high prizes. And we are looking for someone that will take this project. I hope that one of our listeners will take the glove. How do we say? Will, 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 uh, will, can ha- will help us with this, this project. We have also ideas we want to try to bring the plays of him, uh, his, his international plays, theater plays, uh, the marriage, uh, marriage uh, license, Haktuba, or uh, he had some comedy about, uh, it's called Ho Ho Yulia. It is You Meet Romeo and Juliet, you know, the most known romantic uh, a part of a romantic uh, young uh, couple that, that that killed themselves, yes, in, in the known uh, story of Shakespeare. But my father, uh, the situation that my father made, that in the end they didn't kill themselves, they stayed alive, and you meet them 20 years later as a marriage couple. You can imagine, of course, the a little bit discrepancy between the romantic uh, couple when they were young and after 20 years of marriage, it's not exactly the same music. And it's a very, very, very funny, very funny play. It was also a very big success. Uh, a couple of, uh, and, and it's a very compact play. It's only two players. Actually, three players, but the main main work is two players. Um, in Israel, there was a very known couple of players, uh, Arik Lavi and Shoshik Shani. They made before some sketches of my father, but this time they made this theater play. They they went to Germany for three months to to play this play like uh, 20 times. They had a schedule for 20 plays in Germany, and they stayed there three whole years and made it thousand uh, thousand uh, plays of, of this play. It was so successful. Uh, and, and and this we think also to make it, uh, to, to bring it to Broadway or something, one of the, both of them. This is our, uh, me and my two, my brother Amir that lives in New York, by the way, and uh, my sister Renana, we hope to, to bring it uh, one day to to. Uh, to the states, there was a large public works project in Boston years ago where they tore up the streets for years and years, and a lot of people looked at it as being a disaster. And that was called the Big Dig. And I was always curious if someone was a fan of your father's work and used that name as a, a kind of a key in on what a hopeless project it was. That's interesting because it's known in Israel everywhere when they begin to be, do this uh, this uh, project of digging and closing the world, everybody said the Blaumich uh, channel, the Blaumich channel. Also in Germany, you will find it and we, they will say the Blaumich channel, that, that it, it is an expression 
always an expression about uh, the the way that the the government or the city government is not so efficient uh, with with dealing with those things. You were born in what fifty seven? Yes, nineteen fifty seven. So you were growing up as your dad was making all these movies. Uh, yeah, in the in the movie Salah uh, Shabbat first movie I was six years old and uh, six seven and in in the uh, in the big dig I was twelve and uh, I I'm uh, I'm uh, appearing in the movie for a few seconds you can see me on the balcony standing there with my so called father and family yes in in a small scene my brother Amir my brother Amir that was like six years old seven. He he has there a, a bigger role. You see there the a kindergarten is coming to see this uh, all all what happened there in the Allenby Street, and he's a, a very cute uh, red-headed uh, boy, and he you can see him also in the film. I had no idea that that was your brother. That he actually picks up Blau McPill picks up, and they have a close-up together. Yes, yes. He is sitting on the jackhammer. I don't. He has there a nice scene together with Blaumich and everything. How were your dad's films received in Israel, especially Blaumich, because it was poking fun at the bureaucracy so much? That that was his strength. He was never. He 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 kept his independency. Uh, very strong. He didn't want to be a part of any party and any organization, and he he wanted always to be independent, so he can say uh, everything that he wants against whom he wants, and uh, against the the bureaucracy, against the government, and and this is what nice, you know, in in Israel, Israel is a pure democracy. You can say everything that you want against every everybody. And uh, there was no problem, and and he always also he got he got all the financing of the films. He he achieved it uh, from from private people, and and he didn't want to the state uh, to give him money. He wanted to be always independent, and not only all the audience liked it and the people, but also the establishment and the government they liked it because his humor was uh, like uh, laughing about it and was sharp and, 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 and humorful, but he was not mean. He was not mean. He was always, uh, he was not mean. He was not cursing. He was uh, very fine, very delicate. So also, also his victims, you can say they liked it all. He, he said always, I can write a very, uh, uh, some critic against, let's say, the finance uh, minister, and say they 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 don't work well, and they do this and this uh, mistakes. And after a few days, the minister called me and said, "Wow, it was a very beautiful article. I liked it very much. I hanged it in on my wall. Nothing changed. Yeah, <laughs> that's it." You talked about uh, that your dad's uh, movie. Marriage Agreement was such a hit in 2008, and I'm curious, how is he viewed today by the Israeli public? Is he still remembered very fondly? That was a theater play. Yeah, the, the theater play was, uh, yes, a very big success. Not not a film, it's a theater play. And, uh, and now, it's, it's interesting what you, you ask, because 
uh, in January, end of January, it was 15 years uh, after his death, and uh, they made here a, a film, it's a very interesting project. I was also a, a part of it. They took a, a lot of, a few people, let's say, always like two people together. Uh, they they uh, set them for the screen uh, and 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 showed a few and showed parts of the kitchen uh, films. Uh, it, it was me and some uh, woman that played in the policeman. There was a very known Israeli filmmaker Avi Nesher and and some uh, film critiker. But what was somehow more interesting that they put also young people that never uh, saw Kishon films and almost didn't know who he is, and 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 they saw the situation and they filmed the way that how the people we look at at at, at the screen and what we are talking about and and, and the reaction and it became to be a very nice fifty fifteen minutes fifty. 50 minutes of a very uh, uh, emotional and funny film. And, and the resolution is that the, the kitchen is still uh, actual and, and still very beloved here in Israel. Who stand beyond it was Eric Bernstein also, that he made a very interesting uh, documentary about my father using also... Uh, using also a uh, cartoon in this film it that it, it was all the life of my father as my father tells Yaron London a journalist uh, that made with him a autobiographic uh, book about all his life and his work and they made a series of three three parts of uh, 50 minutes uh, everyone this is called Shmo Holech Lefanav if I translate it, it's called like his name goes beyond him or in front of him, in front of him. It's mean, it means like somebody that is known, yes, and, and, or something like this. But I can uh, send you later some material about both of them uh, or some links that you can try to see them, but they, but they are in Hebrew. You don't speak Hebrew, I assume. No, I don't. I'm sorry. Or you are going to tell me, ah, of course I speak. Why didn't we speak English? Of course. <laughs> that would have been I'm a surprise. I wish I could have done that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. The small language, you don't need it in the big, big world. Can you tell me about the English language version of The Big Dig? Ah, that's that's so interesting. That, uh, funny because I remember... In the big dig, I was also uh, I was few times there when they uh, in the filming, uh, also as uh, standing there with the public and and I remember that the 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 scenes they filmed twice and once once in Hebrew and once in English, and I remember uh, that I told my father, but father, this, this player he speaks a horrible English. With a horrible accent. What? what uh, how? How are you going to use it? And so my father said, "It's it's not so important, son, because it's important the word that he says. Later, you can do dubbing, 
But if you know, if it said the re- real text, it's much easier to do a dubbing. If you will have to do dubbing. So also if he has a very bad accent, but he says the, the right words, so it will be easier later to make the English version. So uh, they, they made the version in English that uh, is in English. Uh, and I don't know what part of the players really play and talk their own and what is dubbed uh, and I don't don't have a lot of information about it uh, this version uh, exists somewhere I think there is some Israeli that talked with me I think uh, who is it that, that he knows a little bit about it and uh, tried to find some uh, material about it Yaniv uh, Edelstein yes I think yes And uh, maybe he, he knows more uh, what what happened with it. I think they tried uh, tried to let it uh, play in the states. Maybe it was a time that I don't uh, I, I don't know that uh, it was some uh, big success or something. But uh, maybe the film ran like few weeks in the states or something. But I don't know exactly. You know, I was 12 years in that time. I was not involved. How do you find time to balance your work as a veterinarian as and also being kind of the keeper of your father's memories? I am a veterinarian I said that before noon time I'm working morning time in my clinic and then I have a staff that is coming and working later till till the evening I'm going home going to sleep and after the when the when the sun is going down I'm taking my stand-up uh, clothes and going to the stage and, and, and telling about my father. And I, li- I like it very much. I, I, I uh, fi- found out that uh, with the time, I like it more and more. Standing for the public, for the audience, laughing audience, it's really like, uh, it, it, it's like, like uh, having a... Uh, um, drugs you know it's, it's it's fantastic on the end of films I like it very much it's I'm good in it and now I have a in a, in ten days less in eight days I have in the in this camera theater where I have like three years I have my 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 show about my father once a month there but now I have a new a new thing that I wrote humoristic thing it's called politics It's a funny thing, according to Kishon. In that, I mean also my father and his work and his uh, philosophy, and Kishon generation too, me. And it's a wonderful uh, humoristic show. The, the premiere in the Camry will be on the 1st of uh, March in, in, in seven days or eight days. And it's exactly one day before the election here in Israel. So it's uh, interesting Uh, day and and uh, and this uh, this is this is a new new thing that I wrote uh, myself uh, using uh, materials of my father using a lot of other materials just laughing about all all what uh, beyond the the human. Mr. Kishan, thank you so much for your time. This was a real pleasure talking with you. Yes, it was for me a very good uh, experience to brush up a little bit my English. Because my show that I have about my father, I have it also in English. Yes, uh, 
Yes, yes, I gave it in New Jersey and New York. I was giving it in English and also here in Israel for people that are speaking English. I have also the film parts of my father with the English subtitles, of course. Okay, so I hope maybe we will meet also in the state one day. All right, we were back and we were talking about the big dig. And I did want to talk a little bit more about some of these other uh, Ephraim's Kishin films. The Policeman, continuing the story of Sergeant Constable Sergeant Abraham Azulai. Just another terrific film. I'm so glad that you guys turned me on to this one as well. And a different tone, but still continues with the absurdities. And especially as the movie goes on and our main character is in danger of being fired and you have the whole, all of the things that the gangsters, the robbers set up to help make him a hero. Some of those things are just fantastic. The Again, the sight gag, the humor, all of it. And just, I love the gang of these bad guys and especially the scene of the constable drinking with the main bad guy and doing the whole dancing and everything. Just a terrific, terrific scene. I love the opening of the film because it's, it's a great visual gag where, um, uh, Azulai who goes around, he's sort of like a Cliff Clavin character, a bit of a Noel. And he, we see him and his friend in the foreground. And meanwhile, on the back, you see uh, this, uh, this robbery taking place and, uh, and then the policemen come in and arrest arrest the robbers, but it's all taking place in the background. It's just this ridiculousness, this contrast with Azulai saying, "Oh yeah, 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 this is the best way how to uh, uh, treat crime, and I know everything, and uh, oh, you, you've got to you've got to do it things like this." While his his uh, friend is hanging off every word that he says, and meanwhile, in contrast, uh, it, it everything that he says is being mocked. In, uh, in this visual gag in the background. It's, and you sort of think that you know that the film is going to be another sort of bizarre and ridiculous comedy in the way that The Big Dig was. But um, once again, coming to the opening music, we get the opening music in The Big Dig and it's this light Henry Mancini or Quincy Jones type of uh, light and fluffy sort of thing. and then we, But we get, as Azulai's walking home over the opening credits, we get this sort of sad music, and you think, right, oh, I wonder if this is going to be a little bit more, uh, I don't know, maybe not social realist or anything like that, but certainly a little bit more dramatic. There's going to be something of that on the side, and it certainly does prove to be the case. I think the music is uh, the indicator to it. And Despite the fact that we, we, his character is painted to be a buffoon. Everyone in the police department feels him to be a buffoon, but yet he shows that he has other skills that they just don't consider important. As a translator, he speaks French. Um, and because he's, uh, orthodox, he stops the, um, the Shabbat stoning of, of the cars that's going on because he's able to engage with them on that level while still working as a policeman. I, I just like that the character 
in this one because he's the focus. He's more well-rounded and we see more to him. And not always, not always for the better because I don't think he treats his wife very well. I love the fact that we, we get this contrast. And often like you get a spin off and it could be a cheap cash in or something like that. But I think it's really well written and uh, it's a great character piece. And, and has a lot of heart mostly. That's what most people remember from that film and with that very moving finale. Yes. Doesn't leave a dry eye in the house. Yeah. And interestingly, it's, is, it's Kishon's only film that's not based on a, on an existing piece of writing. Uh, that he did earlier. He just loved Shaikyo feel so much. Uh, and the character of the policeman that didn't even have a name in the two previous films, he just went and wrote a script specifically for him. Um, and of course he delivered one of the great performances, um, for the ages in that one. I was going to ask, is a fear like, was he really, really big at the time or over the years? Because I'm pretty sure I've seen a trailer for a documentary about him. Right, there's a documentary about him that I haven't seen yet, but he was he was a giant. He was a very popular guy, uh, a, a huge talent, a chameleon-like performer. You've seen him three times playing the same character, but he could do anything. He was amazing. He was a man of a thousand faces. He was also a very talented uh, uh, physical mime. He studied in France with the great mimes, with Marcel Marceau, I believe. And again, a story of a guy with a, he tried to have an international career. I think he has a few Hollywood credits as well, but it didn't really take off. And he's remembered, I think, slightly as a, a sort of a missed opportunity, slightly tragic guy who was just an amazing character, amazing, amazing character actor, comedian and all these things. But, um, I don't, after I after I watch the documentary, I, I'll be better informed. Well, it makes sense that he got in with the Cannon Group, what with the Golem Golas connection. Uh, he was in uh, Delta Force and King Solomon's Mines, which I, which I know for sure Delta Force is a Cannon production. I'm pretty sure that King Solomon's Mines was as well. Yeah, not the not the most illustrious part of his career. No, I think he was much better served by his earlier films. And I haven't watched uh, The Fox and the Chicken Coop yet, but I've seen clips of it, and I'm really curious to see that one now. Right, and that one he plays like the polar opposite of of the policeman character in in many ways. He plays you 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 probably won't be able to recognize him at all. He, he's uh, he's an Ashkenazi. He's much older. He's uh, this uh, political figure. Yeah, but it's also been a while since I've seen that film. Yeah, because there's a little documentary about Kishan's films on – there was a box set that was put out a few years ago. And I think the documentary, it's only about a half an hour long, but it feels a little longer, which is a good thing in this case. And it goes through like the five – main films that he did um, and they would have behind the scenes footage and little stories about stuff but once they got to the fox and the chicken coop it was almost like they ran out of film because it was just like here's clips from the movie and we're not going to really talk about the movie that much and then we're going to end this documentary and we're not going to really say anything that happened to Keyshawn after this so it's just really bizarre I wish that there was a lot more to that because I think he's such an interesting character the way that it's usually Framed is that uh, he made this film. This film was not a success for the first time in his career, and he decided to abandon movie making and also left Israel soon afterwards. Yeah, so it's it's generally again it's the only one of his films that's not considered a classic and that's not like beloved by everyone, even though it's had a bit of a resurgence and it's more well thought of nowadays. Um, but yeah, it's it's like his one like 
movie that didn't catch on with the Israeli public. And so I guess that's the reason they, they didn't want to get into it too much. If you were to recommend people getting into Avram Kishan's stuff, would you say start with The Big Dig, or would you go more chronologically? How would you suggest that people come to his work? Maybe The Big Dig is the one that translates best internationally, that and The Policeman. Salaf is a great movie if you care about, uh, the, the, you know, if, if you have an affinity to Israel or Jews, it will hold more interest for you. Then there's Arvinka, which is more of a fun movie. Um Again, about a character of uh, Chaim Topol as a guy who's uh, great at um, getting the best out of everybody in every situation. It's sort of a lighthearted kind of thing. But uh, you, you just can't beat uh, the the Gaumel Canal. It's just um, it's just so funny and audacious and colorful and insane. And um, that would be that would be my either that or if you want to go like for heart, then definitely watch the policeman. And that's nice that he can do both of those, that he can do comedy and movies with heart, and then even mix the two together. And again, again, I've said it before, he's mostly remembered as a writer. So his film, his greatest success was, was as a writer of text, you know, a best-selling author and so forth. So he dabbled in film, made some amazing films, and then, uh, and then retired. I'd also be saying go read some of the books. I mean, you, you read two or three and whatever, you'll get the idea of uh, his approach. It seemed to be consistent, at least across the ones that I've read. But if you like something that's satirically sharp, but not necessarily hitting you with, well, a pneumatic drill, um, then I'd really recommend these uh these books is just a wonderful style of writing. You know, it takes mundane situations and makes them ridiculous, but through the eyes of someone who, who's making them seem almost normal, bizarre, but normal. So, yeah, I, I love him as a writer. I have to ask you, though, because I know you are much more versed in Hebrew than I am. Are these books translated into English? Yes. Yeah, well, yeah, because my, my Hebrew is very, very poor. So no, I'd only be reading them in English, but yes, it's some of his, although mind you, I was sort of hoping in advance of this that I'd see, see if I could seek out some more of his books that I hadn't read. Uh, I mean, the, the two that I mentioned at the start of the show, I was able to do because my sister had both of them. Uh, but it seems like you, you look around and a lot of the books in English are almost nowadays seem to be very hard to find. I'm not sure that they're in print anymore, but if you want to find them in German, there's a, ton of them available in German, but the English translation, you have to look a little bit harder, but they are there. Well, it's interesting because almost every interview that I could find with Kishan that was on YouTube or other places, they all seem to be in German, and it all seems to be like the Germans just, you know, or maybe I'm misinterpreting because I think German is a language of Switzerland, and you said he went back to Switzerland, correct? But he had a huge leadership just in the German language, I think. It's huge in Germany. And I'm assuming Hungary is Central Europe, basically. Yeah. All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Oh. Tu m'en as fait, 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 tu m'en as fait,
bien dans mon dos. On est comme des poissons, pas à côté l'un de l'autre. Puis on se frôle, puis on s'endort. Et au petit matin, au grand matin, ou l'après-midi, c'est ça. Contact. Genoux, mollets, talons, pointe du pied. On est là. Viens. Viens plus près de moi. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at Jacques Rivette's La Morfou, all four hours of it. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Yaniv and Morris. So, Yaniv, what is keeping you busy these days, sir? Well, my lovely daughter, mostly, and uh, my many shows that I translate. That If you speak Hebrew, you can read my fantastic subtitle on Netflix. That's pretty much it. And Morris, what is going on in your world? Well, since December, the... See Here podcast has been on a bit of a hiatus. Personal things in my life sort of meant I had to sort of give it a little bit of distance for a bit. But we're coming back in April, presumably to do the film that we were supposed to do in December, which was Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Um, and then we'll just sort of see month by month what we're uh, doing. But I've gone and arranged for an interview uh, with uh, an Israeli director, Boaz Goldberg, to come up soon. He's done a documentary on a musician I've only become aware of but have fallen in love with in the last couple of weeks uh, called Charlie Megera. We were talking a little bit about this off-air, uh, Yaniv, and um, you said that you had the chance to see him, and I'm extremely envious, but uh, I'm immensely looking forward to uh, watching the film and speaking with Boaz uh, about that. Um, and uh, I love that album, World. Uh, we've uh, just released an episode this week. I was speaking to uh, the great Terry Frost from Paleo Cinema fame, and we just each picked three jazz albums that we wanted to talk about in short form. Neither of us are jazz musicians, so we can't sort of talk in a clever way about amazing time signatures and chord structures and the like. So we just talked for 10 minutes each about uh, a bunch of great jazz albums that we love. Um, and uh, coming up in March, when I think this show comes out the next episode i'll be speaking with uh, ben eisen of the all-time top 10 podcast about the great uh, album by wilco summer teeth so that's anyway that podcast is plodding plodding along having a lot of fun with both thank you so much guys for being on the show thanks everybody for listening please head on over to the website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode you'll also find a link over to patreon where you can make a donation to the show every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.